0: so we have um yeah so we we have um more or less completed the first two schools kind of in a quick way and we're ready to move on to the third of the four schools which is called chitta matra um and before we get into that there were a couple of questions that lum venerable lump cells sent to me and i thought you know the answers might be helpful for others as well so i thought to um yeah share the answers with everyone so one question was um going back to the subtrontica who um, say that uh, ultimate truths are impermanent phenomena because they ultimately perform a function. So she says, I know that Prasangika would not agree with this um, because according to Prasangika, impermanent phenomena are conventional truths, not ultimate truths. But wouldn't they agree that impermanent phenomena are parts of continuums that function to produce the next moment? so yes as far as i understand the prasangika would agree that impermanent phenomena produce the the next moment and and they're functioning things so they agree with that presentation impermanent phenomena are functioning things they change moment by moment and one moment gives rise to the next moment and i think that came up recently in the samsara nirvana buddha nature teachings because if you were to say that um one moment of an object now ceases and then utterly ceases and goes out of existence and doesn't produce the next moment then that's nihilism that's the nihilistic view so Prasangika would not agree with that (laughs) so definitely one moment of a phenomena a permanent phenomena uh, ceases and gives rise to the next moment so there's this continuum of moments of Impermanent phenomena like tables and chairs and bodies and minds and so on. So, so definitely Prasangika would agree with that, but they wouldn't agree with the term. Ultimately, um, the can say, impermanent things ultimately perform a function. I'm not sure what they mean by ultimately, <laughs> but from for Prasangika, ultimately is the same as inherently. Ultimately means inherently. Uh, from its own side independently. So definitely, Prasangika would not agree with that. Uh, second question was, would you explain the Prasangika refutation of the Sotrantika position that the continuum of the body and the mind is the illustration of the person? I found this idea quite appealing. And if we think about the subtle wind mind complex that goes from life to life, that's explained in Tantra, isn't this a form of the continuum of the body and mind that is an illustration of the person? Or is it that this subtle wind mind complex is the basis on which the person is designated? So, yeah, my understanding was that according to Prasangika. they say that if you point to anything in the body or the mind, any individual phenomena or the whole continuum of, you know, body and mind, anything you point to and say that is the person, then you are asserting inherent existence. Yeah. That's one meaning of inherent existence. If you can look for something within. Mm the parts that make it up and and you can find something you can point to and say that's it there then that's inherent existence you're asserting inherent existence so all the other buddhist schools they kind of search within the body mind and they find something they point to something and say that's the person so for some it's the mental consciousness for some it's the collection of the aggregates for some it's the continuum of the aggregates but from the prasangika point of view, they're all affirming inherent existence, if you do that. And, um, and they say that the body, the mind, and the collection of the body and mind, and all the parts of the body and mind, these are the bases of designation of the person, the basis on which person is designated. And the basis of designation and the designated object can't be the same. They, they they cannot be the same so um yeah and also um i was reading I, I found something in volume eight um about this and um you know chandrakirti has this sevenfold reasoning to refute inherent existence and he first applies it to a chariot or a car and then to the person to a to a person And out of these seven points, the sixth point is about the collection. And that's a very appealing idea. You know, you tend to think, okay, yeah, none of the individual parts of my body and mind is me, but the whole collection, the totality, this whole mass of parts of body and mind, that's me. (laughs) So that's, that's kind of a hard one, but he refutes that, um, because again, the collection of parts of the body and mind—that's the basis of designation for the eye. So it can't be the eye; it has to be different than that. But then there's also other, um, other um, kind of absurd consequences. Like if if you look through all the parts of the body and the mind, and and you can't find any of them that's the self or the I. That means all the parts of the body and the mind are not self. They're non selves non persons. And so then if you think Oh, you can put a put together a whole bunch of non persons and call it a person. That would be like saying you put take a big whole box of oranges, you know, a whole box of oranges and call it an apple none of the oranges individually is an apple. So how can a whole bunch of oranges put together be an apple? So that would be like saying taking a whole bunch of phenomena, physical phenomena, mental phenomena, none of which is a person or a self, and you put all those things together. And you say that's a self. So that would be one way of thinking Uh, To refute the idea of a collection, the collection of body and mind being the self. So usually it takes a while to think about this (laughs) to get it. But anyway, in volume eight, it says um, that the continuum, talking about the continuum of the aggregates is the same as the collection. So it says, since the collection of the aggregates isn't the self, the continuum of the aggregates cannot be the self. The continuum is also a collection the collection of moments of the aggregates okay so you apply the same argument about collection to continuum because a continuum is just a series of moments changing all the time over time so again it's, it's like a collection you know all those individual moments of a. A body and mind it is a, like a collection so that also cannot be the self and also the continuum is a basis of designation of the self so it cannot be the self so that's as much as i can say about that question but yeah volume eight <laughs> when it's out and i guess some people have a copy of it already any other questions about about um, Sotrantika before we move on? I, I had a question based on one of the things you just said. This, this idea of if the parts are not self, the collection of the parts can't then be the self. It feels like I can apply that argument to basically every single phenomena. Is it, would that be the Prasangika? point of a way to say nothing exists inherently is that that would apply in all situations um well yeah i mean it starts off with the chanda starts off talking about a chariot or we could take a car <laughs> or even even the thermos right yeah yeah um but that's see there's a difference between conventionally i mean conventionally mm-hmm. you can say that um, you know, a collection of skin, blood, bones, and so on can be called mm-hmm. body. That's fine, mm-hmm. but it's not inherently, mm-hmm. you know, inherently existing body. Conventionally existing body, yes, but not inherently existing body. So this kind of, of um, analysis is on the level of ultimate reality. It's an ultimate analysis, mm-hmm. not conventional analysis. So when you're just analyzing something conventionally, Yes, you can say, you know, a car is made of this parts and you call it a car and a body is made of all these parts and you call it a body. Conventionally, that's fine. But when you're talking about ultimate analysis, you're looking for the object, um, the labeled object, the imputed object. Mm-hmm. You're looking for a body or a car or a person. What exactly is it? Can you point to something? and say that is the body, that is the car, that is the person. So when you do that kind of an analysis, if you find something, that's inherent existence. Mm-hmm. So you're not supposed to find something. And <laughs> the other schools do find something, but the Prasangikas don't. So yeah, so there are these two different levels of analyzing things, conventionally and ultimately. So you have to be clear about which kind of analysis you're you're doing, which kind of searching you're doing. But we're we're still on the lower schools. We're not yet on Prasangika yet. <laughs> so, it's, okay. So today we'll start the third school called Chitta which means mind only. Um, but this term "mind only" can be misleading. If you just read that or hear that, you might think that they say all there is is mind, nothing else except mind, and that's not what they're saying. Um, so we'll get into what that means a little bit later. So the definition in the text for a citta is a person who propounds Mahayana, tenets, does not assert external objects and asserts self-cognizers to be truly existing. So the first part about propounding Mahayana tenets. So the previous schools we looked at were uh, uh, Hinayana tenets, and so now we're moving into the Mahayana tenets. And um, one of the main differences between the, the, the schools propounding Hinayana tenets and those propounding Mahayana tenets is that in the Hinayana schools, they only assert selflessness of persons. They only talk about selflessness or emptiness with regard to persons, human beings, animals and so on and so forth. but not they don't talk about selflessness with regard to phenomena other than persons like tables and chairs and cars and so on. Whereas Mahayana, the Mahayana schools do have a selflessness of phenomena, in addition to selflessness of persons, so that's probably the main distinguishing uh, feature of the Mahayana schools. And another one is that the Mahayana schools assert omniscience. They say that the Buddha is omniscient, meaning. A buddha's mind is able to see all phenomena everything that exists simultaneously so the two hinayana schools he said buddha can know everything but not all at the same time <laughs> um, but yeah in the mahayana schools they say buddha does know everything at the same time each moment and they also assert obscurations that prevent omniscience, whereas the other two schools didn't. They only asserted um, mainly afflictive obscurations. And also Buddha nature. So the Mahayana schools say, all sentient beings have the potential to become Buddha, to reach enlightenment. Well, that was not something Mahayana school said and then the second phrase says does not assert external objects so this is the main distinguishing feature of uh, chitta mantra um the meaning of external objects i did talk about it before but just to remind you um the way we see things ordinary uh beings uh like us things appear as if they exist out there external to the mind independent of the mind so when we see a car for example it seems to be out there and doesn't have anything to do with our mind it's just out there waiting for us to come along and see it get in and drive it and, and so on that's how things appear everything appears like it's out there external not related to the mind. And this appearance of external existence is false. It's mistaken. It's an illusion. So according to them, when we see an object, like a car, the appearance of the car is actually coming from our mind. So what happens is, in our mind, there are all these seeds or imprints our past experiences and so one of those imprints is arising ripening and it causes the appearance of the car and the eye consciousness perceiving the car seeing the car so those two things object and subject car and perceiver arise simultaneously from the same cause, the seed or imprint on the mind. That's the reality. That's how things exist. Everything we see is just like a projection, you might say, uh, coming from our mind, the ripening of a seed in our mind. Mm. So that's the meaning of they do not assert external objects they, were, they would deny that. They refute that. Everything is just coming from our mind. And they use the analogy of dreams to illustrate how things can appear very real, even though they're not. Because when we're asleep and having dreams, to our dreaming mind, all the things that appear, the people, and the animals, and the places, and so on and so forth, They all appear very real, like they're existing out there. We even get emotionally caught up and reactive to what we see. But all those things that appear in our dream are just coming from our mind. They're not really out there. So they say it's similar with waking time when we're awake. All the things we see are also just coming from our mind. So that's the, that's the meaning of mind only. It doesn't literally mean there's only mind, nothing else, but rather everything that we perceive is coming from our mind and is of the nature of mind in the sense that the car that we perceive and the perceiving consciousness, the eye consciousness perceiving it, they're one nature, one entity. So I'll just read something from um, Meditation on Emptiness. Chitta Matra and one of the sub-schools of Madhyamaka, the Yogacara Svatantrika Madhyamaka, are the only Buddhist schools that deny external objects. All the other schools say that an object of a sense consciousness, like a car, is an entity external to the perceiving consciousness. And for them, for the other Buddhist schools, objects are a cause of consciousness in that they cause consciousness to be produced in their image. So they are the cause for the arising of a perception, a mind that's perceiving it. And causes must exist before their effects, right? Cause has to come first and then the effect. Not simultaneously or afterward, because nothing can affect an already existent entity in that very moment. Thus, because of the cause and effect relationship of object and sense consciousness, and because causally related things must be different entities, the other schools assert that object and subject are different entities or different natures. The Chittamatrans disagree, saying that Buddha taught that a sense consciousness perceives a present object. So there must be some sutra somewhere where the Buddha said that. Whereas if object and subject were cause and effect, then since a cause has ceased when its effect exists, a sense consciousness would be perceiving a past object. So the object ceased, is there one moment before the the, pers- the visual consciousness seeing it, mm-hmm. right? So you're actually seeing a, an object that's already ceased, that's already passed. So the non-Chita schools must accept that an object of a sense consciousness exists one instant prior to its apprehender. But they say that the object is present in that there is no moment intervening between the object moment and the perceiver moment. So that's how they get around this <laughs> Oh, it's present because, you know, it's just one one tiny instant before. It's still present. So that's how they yeah, explain what the Buddha said. The Theramatrins uh however are able to uphold the Buddha's teachings on this point without any qualifications. For them, object and subject exist simultaneously. A seed or imprint is activated, the seed in the mind, and simultaneously produces both an object and a cognizing subject, much as in a dream. So this is not easy to understand. We need to think about it a lot and meditate on it to make sense of it because obviously it's not how we see things it's not the way in which things appear to us and and so we sentient beings according to this school sentient beings unenlightened beings are caught up in this ignorance thinking that there are external objects everything we perceive is external to our mind independent of our mind and this is an ignorance and this is the main ignorance that has to be overcome in order to reach enlightenment not to be free of samsara to be free of samsara all you have to do is realize that selflessness of persons okay we'll get to that later but to if you want to become enlightened like bodhisattvas the bodhisattvas want to reach enlightenment so they have to meditate on this and they have to realize this in order to reach enlightenment this is the main Ignorance, preventing enlightenment. So we'll be talking about this more as we go along. Hopefully it'll get more clear. Last part of the definition says they assert self-cognizers to be truly existent. So we heard about self-cognizers before with the The Last school we looked at. That's what, a kind of mind or kind of consciousness that sees consciousness itself. So when we are looking at something, we're seeing something out there, there's another consciousness that's happening at the same time and looking at the consciousness itself. There's an eye consciousness seeing the car, and then there's a self-cognizer seeing that eye consciousness. So the other schools like Prasangika don't agree with that, but Sotrandaka and Chita Mantra do, they assert this. And the thing about truly existent, we'll get into that later, um, what they say is truly existent. But they say mind, all minds, and in fact, all impermanent phenomena and also emptinesses are truly existent. But we'll look at that later and what is the meaning of truly existent. And then there's some synonyms, other terms or names for the school, Chittamatra, uh, Vijnaptivada, which means proponents of cognition, and also Yogacara, which means practitioner of yoga, meaning not physical yoga, but oh. mental yoga. <laughs> um, they put a lot of emphasis on meditation, mental mental yogic practices. I've also seen Yogacara written with a Y, Yogacharya, mm-hmm. and I looked in the Tibetan dictionary and both terms are there. So they both seem to be okay. And Jeffrey uses this one, yogachara so I think it's okay. Okay, then there's divisions, um, or sub schools. So this first kind of division isn't in our text, the text of Jetson Choki Gelsen, but it's in other sources. For example, Geshe Kelsang Wangmo's booklet and um, and yeah, she says this is actually the most important division of the Chita Mantra school. First is called Followers of Scripture and they follow Asanga's five treatises on the levels. Asanga was a prolific writer. He wrote a huge number of texts and commentaries and so on and he's said to be the main founder of of this school of Chittamatra. not that he invented it but rather um you know they 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 rely on certain sutras um statements in sutras um where the buddha spoke about things like mind only and then it seems that yog um asanga and his brother vasubandhu um developed the school based on Buddha's sutras um so that's one type of cheetah mantra and that's the main one when for example the madhyamakas refute the cheetah mantras they do a lot of that <laughs> chandrakirti's text we'll get to that later when we're studying with geshi lundra yeah there's a huge section on refuting the cheetah mantras and it's mainly that school the followers of scripture that are being refuted they, because of certain assertions they have and then the second division is, are the followers of reasoning and these follow texts on valid cognition by dignaga and dharmakirti so you may remember when we were studying um dharmakirti's pramanavartika and it was said that that text is a kind of synthesis of Sotrantika and shidamatra contains kind of ideas from both of those schools. So he was, Dharmakirti and I guess Dignaga as well, were both considered Chita um, And they use more reasoning in their in their um, investigation of reality and so on. Can I ask, is, this five treatises, is that the same thing that's translated as the Bodhisattva Bhumis, or is that a different text? it seems that the Bodhisattva Bhumi, there, there's one text called the Yogatara Bhumi, yogachara Bhumi by Asanga, mm-hmm. And it apparently it's huge, it's mm-hmm. enormous. And I think the Bodhisattva Bhumi is part of that. Um, and it's not this. Sorry, it's it's Yeah, so it I think it would be on this. one of those because Bhumi, yeah, when it says five treatises on the levels, I think yeah. levels is Bhumi's. Okay. I tried to find in, in Meditation on Emptiness, there is a list of these five treatises. Um, I don't know how if any of them have been translated into English, mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe one of these days. But I think there's, there is part, maybe part of some of his treatises are translated. I think Hal Boomholz mm-hmm. has translated some of them, I think we have. Yeah. You know, like yeah. Artemis Engel too, has some of it. Mm-hmm. And the Mahayana Sangraha used to be on online free. I can't call it up anymore. We used it for a yoga chara Mahayana oh. Sangraha. Yeah, in that's Singapore, what compendium of Mahayana. I don't know. Venerable Trungpa was going through it with us, but we got to page two. That's <laughs> 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 as far as we got. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yoga chara was quite popular in China, and then. Uh, also spread to Japan and Korea, Vietnam, so the Eastern Asian countries. And then the next slide. Um, okay, so more divisions. So these are in the text of uh, Jetson Shoki Gelson. And but um, Geshe Ma Kelsung Longbo in her booklet said that these divisions are not the most important ones so if you have trouble understanding them don't worry i've always had trouble understanding them <laughs> they're really like what are they talking about <laughs> so i'm just going to go through them kind of quickly um and um yeah so this there's the two divisions the true aspect chita and the false aspect chita and then each of those has further subdivisions So it seems that the difference between these two groups, the true aspect and the false aspect uh, lies in something that they say about uh, perception, an ordinary beings direct perception. So when we see a form, um, for example, a table or a car, it appears like a gross object. And Geshe-Java Tekshok in his commentary said the meaning of gross is that it appears to hold its own position. So what I think of when I read that, I think it means it just seems to take up space, maybe. Yeah, it's there and it, it's gross It takes up space. I don't know. But that's that's what he said. And he said it, it's not the same as saying that it appears to be an external object. Hmm. There's a difference between saying it's an external object and saying a gross object, at least for the first group, the true aspectarians. Okay, So what the true aspectarians say is that the appearance of an object as gross, as holding its own position, that this is not related to the ripening of imprints, but it's simply to the way in which an object maintains its gross composition of form so they say that the appearance of a table as a gross object does exist as it appears in that sense appearing is gross that's fine that's okay it does exist in that way that's not due to mistaken perception ignorance you know so that's what they say the true aspectarians. On the other hand the false aspectarians they say the opposite they say the appearance of an object like a table as gross is a a mistaken appearance it's due to ignorance and it seems like they say it's the same as external objects saying that it appears as gross and saying that it appears external is the same thing they're both due to imprints in the mind and due to ignorance. So Geshe-jama says that for the false aspect, Chita an ordinary being's perception is polluted by ignorance with respect to the appearance of form as a gross object. They say that as soon as we see a form like a table, it appears to us as an external conglomeration of parts. And this is the appearance of external existence due to contamination of perception by the imprint of ignorance. So it sounds like the false aspectarian say every aspect of the appearance of an object is wrong, is mistaken. Gross, external, it's all wrong. That's that's my interpretation. <laughs> Whereas the true aspectarians say, well, we agree that the appearance as external is wrong, but not the appearance of gross. That's okay. That's correct. Now, I don't know how important this is. I was kind of thankful to read that Geshima Kelson said it's, you know, <laughs> this particular division isn't the most important one. The other one one of the followers of scripture and followers of reason. that's the more important division. So yeah, and some books don't even mention these, like meditation on emptiness and his section on the cheetah mantras. He doesn't even mention these <laughs> maybe not that important. And then <laughs> okay, now we get into fun things. So the true aspect uh maters have three subdivisions. Proponents of an equal number of subject and objects, half agists and non-pluralists. <laughs> um, so again, I you know I'll just explain as much as I can about what they say, but don't worry about it. And um, so they have different assertions. Oh, that's quite interesting. They have a different they have different assertions about, for example, a visual consciousness perceiving a multicolored object like a butterfly's wing okay you have a butterfly or maybe we could say a tonka. okay we have these tonkas in the room and then the tonka consists of many different colors and shapes and so on so when we're looking at a tonka, um, according to this school it's one imprint on the mind that is arising and causing both the perception both the object that appears and the mind perceiving it okay so then the question is at any one moment with regard to a multicolored object like a tanka are there many different eye consciousnesses perceiving each of the different colors in the object or is there only one eye consciousness perceiving the whole mass, the whole conglomeration of the object. So that's the question. And these different schools have different answers. The first one, um, proponents of an equal number of subjects and objects, they they say that there's an aspect of each individual color coming from the object. And then there's an individual consciousness for each color. Mm. So equal number of objects and subjects—that's their view. The half agists <laughs> say that um, there's many. According to Geshe uh, Tech Tegchok, there are many aspects of the object, like you know, different colors appearing as a model, as a mass of colors and there's just one consciousness apprehending the the model, the conglomeration of, of colors. And then the non-pluralists, the third one, Geshtam um, says, they assert that it's not possible to have one object with many appearances, nor can there be many consciousnesses apprehending many things simultaneously. So they they say there's just one consciousness perceiving a single conglomeration of color. So again, like I said, don't worry about this. And in fact, Geshe's open in the book cutting through appearances. <laughs> he says uh, different Tibetan scholars also interpret these three differently you know like what are these three subdivisions actually saying so different tibetan scholars have different answers to that so it gets really complicated and if you're really interested in it you can read that book (laughs) cutting through appearances page 253 to 258 five whole pages (laughs) we're going into these different Yeah, but I mean, it's an interesting question, and I can imagine that on the debating grounds, yeah, you could get into some really fun debates with all of these, but we're not, we don't have the time to do that. And then the the other, the the false suspectarian Chittamatrans have two divisions, which are called tainted and non-tainted. And again, Geshe's says there's different interpretations of what they say, um, Geshe Jama Tekshuk said the tainted false aspectarians say that the nature of the mind is stained by the imprint of ignorance and this stain is still there even when you become a Buddha. So that means a Buddha's mind is still tainted, is still stained, and a Buddha still has mistaken appearances. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so in Cutting Through uh, cutting through Appearances, Geshe says, according to Junkya Rope Dorje, he says, no way, no <laughs> Buddhist school would say that a Buddha's mind still has stains and sees things mistakenly. So that that doesn't make sense. No school would say that. So we don't know what they really say the untainted the non-tainted ones they say the opposite they say no no buddha's mind is not stained you know the stains can be purified so again we don't know for sure what those two sub-schools say unless you really want to go into the big books like jeffrey's it's called maps of the profound he probably has more information in there okay next is etymology why are they called these names? Um, okay, mind only or chitta mantra, they're called that because they say that phenomena are merely in the nature of mind. And this and that name, it, the term for mind is sem in Tibetan, there's many different names for different terms for mind. So sem um so saying that phenomena are in the nature of mind again doesn't mean they are mind because if you were to say that phenomena are mind, then you'd have the absurd consequence that tables and chairs and rocks and trees can see things and can think and have buddha nature and become enlightened i mean some people probably do think that way (laughs) um Especially with trees and plants but no that's not the meaning of mind only or saying that things are in the nature of the mind it just means that the objects we perceive with our senses uh, visual forms sounds smells odors tactile objects um, they don't exist external to the mind they don't exist out there just waiting for us to come along and perceive them, but rather they come from the mind itself, they arise from this imprint in the mind, simultaneously with the mind that's perceiving them. And so subject and object, like the, the, the visual consciousness, seeing a car and the car that it sees, those two things are said to be one nature. one entity. And saying that thing, two things are one nature doesn't mean they are one doesn't mean they are the same. It just means that they they arise together, abide together and cease together. And they can't be separated, you can't pull them apart. So that's, that's what they say. And then um, the other term uh proponents of cognition that was a, a translation of vijnaptavadhan um again it's because they say all phenomena are merely in the nature of cognition and The term there was namparikpa, which yeah and in case you wonder where they get their ideas the next slide has some quotations from sutras so the buddha did say things <laughs> the main sutra they use is the sutra unraveling the thought the sunday nirmojana sutra um, we looked at that a little bit a few years ago with Jay when we had the course with jay garfield and so in um in chapter eight of that text Maitreya is asking the Buddha some questions. So one of the questions Maitreya asks is if the appearances of the forms of sentient beings and so forth, which abide in the nature of images of the mind, are they not different from the mind? And the Buddha replied, they are not different, meaning the appearances of sentient beings and so on are not different from the mind. And then the Buddha went on to say, because childish beings with distorted understanding do not recognize these images as cognition only, just as they are in reality, they misconstrue them. So yeah, the Buddha said, they are mind only. And in that sutra, there's also, but also talks about the three natures and also the mind basis of all which we'll get to later. And then another Sutra is the Sutra of the Ten Grounds. So a quote from that Sutra is he thinks this similarly the three realms are only mind. And another Sutra is the descent into Lanka Sutra, Lankavatara Sutra. And then that Buddha says the external appear but do not exist mind appears as the varieties the likeness of bodies enjoyments and abodes i explain them as mind only so these quotes some of these quotes actually come up in chandra kirti's where they were refuted <laughs> at least the chita and um, interpretation is in, is refuted, and according to Madhyamaka, when the Buddha uh, said these things, um, it was meant for people who have strong attachment to things like bodies and enjoyments and the bows and people who have really, really, really strong attachment, very difficult to give up their attachment. And so Buddha gave this kind of teaching to help them overcome their attachment, and then gradually their mind would become more pure, and they would be able to be ready for, you know, the real explanation of things. So it's just kind of provisional teachings to help those with strong attachment. So anyway, based on these kind of quotations from Sutra, Asanga and Vasubandhu and other Indian masters formulated this, um, this school, the Chittamantra Yogacara School. Okay, so now um, next is the object, how they assert objects and starting with the two truths so with all the other schools we've also seen how they explain the two truths so it says objects of knowledge are divided into ultimate truths and conventional truths so what that means is objective knowledge is another way of saying phenomena or existent meaning whatever exists everything that exists is either an ultimate truth or conventional truth uh, so, the definition of an ultimate truth is that which is realized by a valid direct perceiver that directly realizes it by means of the vanishing of dualistic appearances. So, this definition is almost identical, maybe it is identical to the one we got when, in the Wednesday class there, um, when we're going through the 70 topics uh the yoga chars madhyamaka a few weeks ago we looked at their definitions of the two truths and it's exactly the same i think so what this means is ultimate truths are emptinesses and selflessness selflessness of a person selflessness of phenomena those are the things that are ultimate truths and When an ultimate truth is directly perceived um, and the only uh, kind of mind that can directly perceive an ultimate truth is an Arya's uh, yogic direct perceiver, so an Arya being who has direct perception of emptiness or selflessness, so that mind, that kind of mind, when that mind perceives an ultimate truth, then there's the vanishing of dualistic appearances so i guess you jama in his commentary explained three types of dualistic appearance one is the appearance of separate subject and object and i think that's probably referring to how um normally for ordinary beings there seems to be a separation of subject and object. There's a subject over here perceiving an object over there that seems to be external, independent of a different nature than the mind. So that kind of appearance of subject and object being separate and cut off and not one nature. That's the main kind of dualistic appearance according to this school, a false appearance, an illusory appearance. So when you have a direct realization of, emptiness or ultimate truth, that vanishes, you no longer have that sense of separate subject and object. Another kind of dualistic appearance is the appearance of a mental image or conceptual image. Like when we have a conceptual mind, a thought, a memory, then our mind is getting at the object by means of a image, conceptual image um and and so that's also a kind of dualistic appearance and that vanishes when you have the direct realization of an ultimate truth and then he said the third uh type of dualistic appearance is the appearance of self-existence and he only said that without explaining what he meant so I'm wondering if it might mean the appearance of um, a self-supporting, substantial, existent self, that kind of false type of self that we perceive and believe in and, and, um, and have ignorance about. So that kind of self also disappears. So none of those type of dualistic appearances appear when an aria is in meditative equipoise directly realizing uh an ultimate truth selflessness and then there's other terms synonyms of ultimate truth ultimate truth reality so reality is chuni um, or dharmata in sanskrit and then element of qualities is Dharma Datu, you probably heard that term, Dharma Datu. Uh chewing in Tibetan. So that's how it's translated here. And then final mode of subsistence. Uh, neluk Tartuk in Tibetan. I don't know Sanskrit term for that. Final mode of existence. And it doesn't mention emptiness as a synonym, but I think it is. <laughs> I think yeah. Emptiness would also be a synonym of ultimate truth. And then conventional truths are just in a simple way, everything other than emptiness, everything that's not an emptiness or a selflessness is a conventional truth. But the, the definition is it's kind of the opposite of the definition of an ultimate truth. Is it's realized by valid direct perceiver that directly reala- realizes it by way of being together with dualistic appearances. So when we have a valid direct perceiver perceiving a conventional truth, then there are dualistic appearances. Mostly, mainly that the appearance of separate subject and object. There's a subject over here and the object over there. And they're completely separate and cut off and uh, independent of each other, not the same nature. That's the main dualistic appearance that this school is concerned about. Um, Yeah, so yeah. So in brief, ultimate truths are emptinesses and conventional truths are everything else. And in our text, in the text we're going through um, Getson Choki Gelsen's text, he doesn't really give much explanation about the three natures. So I've put on the next slide um, the explanation of the three natures. So this is a um, important part of the chitta View of things, and it comes up in the Sutra Unraveling the Thought, the Sunday Sutra. So, according to this school, all phenomena are included in these three that's like a threefold division of phenomena. First is called other powered natures, and that refers to all impermanent things. All impermanent phenomena, all functioning things are other-powered. And the reason it's called other-powered is because they are dependent on other things for their existence. They're mainly causes and conditions. So a tree depends on the seed and the water and the soil and the sunshine and so on for it to be existing. For to exist. A car depends on all the people in the factory making the making the car putting together all the different parts and all the parts coming from different places and so on. So all impermanent phenomena are other powered because they depend on other phenomena in order to exist. And the second is called thoroughly established natures. And these are selflessnesses and emptinesses so example selflessness of persons the absence of a self-sufficient substantially existent person that's a thoroughly established nature but the main thoroughly established nature is the emptiness of subject and object being of different natures which The simple way of, call, of, of referring to that is non-duality, <laughs> just to keep it simple. Non-duality. But you do have to understand what, what they mean by non-duality, because non-duality means other things in other schools. But citta non-duality means um, there's no duality between subject and object. Subject and object are one nature. They arise from the same seed, the same imprint on the mind. So, the emptiness of subject and object being of different natures is their main emptiness that they are concerned about. And that's a thoroughly established nature, second type of phenomena. And these are ultimate truths. So, number two are ultimate truths, thoroughly established nature. And then the third nature are called imputational or imaginary natures. I don't know about what are other ways of translating that imputed nature, I think. Um, So these include permanent phenomena, other than number two. So in number two, we have emptiness, selflessness, and those are permanent phenomena. But there's other kinds of permanent phenomena like uncompounded space and conceptual images the absence of an elephant in the room so there's lots of permanent phenomena so those are imputational or imaginary and they're called that because they don't exist by way of their own character they're merely imputed they're just imputed by names and concepts. Now with this third category, the the imputational natures, it actually, there's two kinds of imputational natures, the one I just mentioned are existing, existing imputational natures, imputational natures that exist. They're permanent phenomena, other than emptiness. But then there's also non-existent imputational natures. Um, and that would include any kind of non-existent, like rabbit's horns, or flowers growing in the sky, or a king of America, or, you know, those kind of things. So anything that doesn't doesn't even exist, um, so it doesn't exist among objects of knowledge. But the main uh, imputational nature is um subject and object being of different nature that false appearance that we have when we see an object and it seems to be out there external independent of our mind so that mode of existence is the main imputational nature that's the thing that has to be refuted the main object of refutation. So they say that all three natures can be understood on a single object. So for example, let's take a table. So the table itself is an OPN, another powered nature. <laughs> okay, it's a dependent phenomena, dependent on causes and conditions and so on. So that's that's number 1. And then in relation to the table, we establish number two, the emptiness of being a different entity from the mind that perceives it. So if we um, analyze and check, does the table exist independent of my mind out there, external to my mind. According to this goal, they would say we would realize no, it doesn't exist that way. That's a false appearance. And we would realize the emptiness of that false appearance emptiness of being a different entity from the mind perceiving it so that emptiness is number two a thoroughly established nature and then the object that's refuted in this process uh the table being a different entity from the mind that perceives it, that's like the object of refutation. It appears, but it doesn't exist. That's yeah, a false mode of appearance. So that's, uh, that's an example of number three, although it's a non-existent imputational nature, not an existent one. Because remember, imputational natures can be existent or non-existent. So that's a non-existent imputational nature so i think they say that you can you can posit these three natures on every phenomena although they mainly talk about it with regard to other powered natures impermanent phenomena any impermanent phenomena you can find these three natures existing on them so there's this is how the three natures are explained in the Gelukpa tradition <laughs> and there's i think different ways of explaining them um, so don't hold too tightly to this i think when we were studying with jay garfield we we ran into this that he had some different ways of explaining the three natures and also not too long ago um, i had some correspondence with a zen teacher named ben Connolly who um, he's already published one book, which is a translation of one of Vasubandhu's texts on Yogacara. And he has he's about to publish another book, um, which contains a translation of another text of Vasubandhu's on Matra Yogacara in the three natures. And he asked me if I would read the book and do a what do you call like a review of it or mm-hmm um what's that word? Word. Hmm? word recommendation recommendation yeah so i started reading it but i ran out of time but i also noticed that yeah his way of explaining the three <laughs> natures was very different i mean it's kind of nice the book was very nice because it's very kind of practical like how can you apply this in your daily life but it was still a very different explanation of the three natures mm-hmm. than what we've learned and you know i wrote to him about that and he said yes yeah i mean he's coming from zen tradition and he said yeah in in the chan tradition and in the zen tradition they did have different commentaries different uh, ways of explaining the three natures um so he was aware of that and um yeah so it just <laughs> this is the galupa way of explaining it and They're probably relying on Asanga's texts and other commentaries to come up with this explanation. But yeah, just to be aware that this isn't the only way of explaining the three natures. Should we move on? There's one more more slide, now we can stop. Although we may not even get through all of this. (laughs) Okay, so now we have Back to the two truths, and there's divisions of the two truths. So ultimate truths can be divided into two. Um, so self, subtle selflessness of persons, which we've encountered before, the emptiness of a self-supporting, substantially existent person. So again, that's the sense we have of a self that's like a controller, master, boss, over the aggregates. So, um yeah so they 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 call that a subtle selflessness of persons they also do assert of course selflessness of persons like before the emptiness of a permanent unitary, independent self but it's not clear if that's an ultimate truth because it's not listed in the divisions of ultimate truth so it could be that that kind of selflessness is not an ultimate truth. I'm, I'm not sure. Maybe when you have a realization of that, there's still dualistic appearances. Maybe not sure. But anyway, look, I mentioned before, according to Chita in order to get out of samsara, to get to Nirvana liberation, you only need to realize this first type of selflessness, selflessness of persons. You only have to realize the emptiness of a self-supporting, substantial-existent person, and then you can overcome the um, afflictive obscurations and be free of samsara. But bodhisattvas want to do more than that. They want to go all the way to Buddhahood. So in order to reach Buddhahood then it's necessary to realize this second type of selflessness the subtle selflessness of phenomena subtle selflessness of phenomena so that covers all phenomena besides, uh, other than persons and there's two examples of this the first is the emptiness of a form and the mind apprehending it being different natures so that's what we've already looked at, like when we see a table, the table that we perceive, and the perception, the eye consciousness perceiving it, those are not different natures or different entities. Because they both arise simultaneously from the same cause, the seed in the mind. So, realizing that emptiness of them being different natures, that's one type of subtle selflessness of phenomena and then the second one is the second example is emptiness of a form existing by way of its own characteristics as a base for the term form have you heard of this one before yeah it's always i've had trouble understanding it but um but it's said to be e- it's said to be as subtle as the first one, but easier to realize. <laughs> and realizing it helps realizing the first one. And so, basically, it means that we ordinary beings who haven't realized emptiness, when we see an object like a table or let's say a chair for variety, um, when we see a chair the chair appears to exist by way of its own characteristics as the basis for the name chair like from its own side it's it's got some kind of quality to be to have that name chair rather than the name chair simply being imputed by human beings with our minds, our conceptions. So Chita does say that it's fine to name things to give names to things, things are bases for names. Okay, so an object that's got a seat and a back and legs, and a place where we can put our bum, that can be called a chair, or whatever in another language. So that's fine, but it doesn't exist from its own side by way of its own characteristics as the basis for that name chair. And they say that if it did, if a chair did exist by way of its own characteristics as the basis for the name chair, then people, nobody would have to be told this is a chair everybody would know it's a chair just by looking at it. As soon as you see a chair, you would immediately know it's a chair without having to be taught that name. So this is another kind of emptiness and it in, one, in some way, it may sound kind of simple, but I guess it's, it's still quite subtle and profound, and one has to meditate. And there's quite a big section in Meditation on Emptiness um, that explains like four different contemplations, meditations, in order to understand this, um, this point, and then four realizations you would come to. So we've run out of time. in fact we've gone over time. so we'll stop there. but we, we can come back to this next next time and you have questions. And then we'll look at conventional truths. Okay, thank you. we'll dedicate the merit. Due to this merit, may May we soon attain the awakened state of Guru Buddha, that we may be able to liberate all sentient beings from their suffering. May the precious Bodhi mind not yet born arise and grow. May that born have no decline, but increase forevermore.